The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we give you thanks for drawing us to you. For the great work that you've done in Christ, make a people, make a church. To gather us here to this time now to hear from you, and I pray that as we open up this passage and consider it, that you would use it to do a work in each person here in this room, whether we long time walk with you, have long time walked with you, or are just maybe at this moment considering it for the first time. Every each person here is, Lord, use this passage to work in each of us. Most of us here, though, Lord, we, we've known you for some time, and as we just sang about you holding us fast, I pray that you would use this passage in particular to, to kind of cinch up the, the, the straps that hold us, to tighten your grip on us, to tighten our grip on you, to, to draw us closer into a deeper walk of discipleship with you. We're in all different places, but I think probably most of us are there, and so I pray that you would use this as encouragement and as a, a strengthening of, of resolve, a deepening of walk. So I'll make your word clear this morning, Lord, I pray. Send your spirit to inhabit this place and have your way with our minds and hearts here this morning to build us up and bring honor to yourself. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Last week in Matthew chapter 8, we saw a Gentile Roman military officer express just the sort of complete, humble, dependent faith in Jesus that Jesus requires. A Gentile Roman military officer humbly dependent on this roaming, homeless Jewish guy. It was remarkable. Jesus looked at that and marveled and then pointed out the situation to those who were his followers. He showed them and us, look at this, this is what surrendered faith looks like, and then he showed them and us why it's so appropriate. As he turned and then healed and displayed his authority to heal individuals and then a whole mass of people. Jesus, quite obviously, is in command and able and intent on healing and, on, and carrying away all the infirmities and all the afflictions, all that hurts, in part now, but one day fully, a great mercy to people. But more than that, a clear sign to everybody who's paying attention that he's the one Isaiah 53 is about. He's the Messiah. We saw this last week. That, that Isaiah 53 is not only talking about the one who carries away sin on the cross, but also the one who, who carries away all that hurts. And so we look at Jesus and we see he's that one. That, that one's him. He's the Messiah of the scriptures, long promised, arrived. And as such, he demands our allegiance on his terms, not on ours. And now as the flow of the story moves on, it, it presses that point home on his terms. Allegiance on his terms. He's full of authority. 
And that demands that everyone who follows him would follow him in true discipleship, in true faith, in this true Jesus, completely committed as he defines it. That's the challenge he's going to lay before a few disciples this morning in the passage that we'll look at in the middle of Matthew chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 18 to 27, a challenge to those who, who first were there and, and to all of us as we, as we hear it. And as I prayed, my, my hope is that it would be wherever we are on the spectrum of maybe you're just considering Jesus for the first time or maybe you've walked with him for forever, that it'll hit us all differently but similarly. A challenge that's encouraging and it'll, it'll say, this is the one I'm supposed to follow and can follow. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let me read the passage. This is Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 18 down through 27. Now when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And the scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? O you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? That even the winds and sea obey him. Matthew chapter 8. I make two observations from this passage, one from each of the two paragraphs. And they may, they may seem that they're disconnected, but I think by the end we'll see that actually they are they are next to each other for a reason. But here's the first observation. Jesus makes demanding requirements for discipleship. Jesus makes, he, he issues, he gives, he makes demanding requirements for discipleship. Verse 18 gives us the setting, another large crowd, and as always, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of people around Jesus they are checking out what he has to say, watching what he does, maybe hoping to benefit from what he does. There's this crowd, and also then there's a, another large group that's smaller, people who are his followers, who call themselves disciples. They're kind of, they've stepped forward just a little bit. They are impressed so far with what they've heard or seen from Jesus, and they've kind of like, you know, raised their hands. I'm a follower. That's me. I'm one of his disciples. Jesus knows, though, that not all of those people, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, is actually one of his true disciples, actually correctly understands what that even means, who he actually really is, the true Jesus, what it means to really follow him. And so often he's engaged in sorting all this out, truth from error, drawing hard lines, making, making challenging statements. The whole Sermon on the Mount essentially was one big challenge to folks like this. 
He's often putting it out there to try to help people understand what it means to be one of his disciples. What is it people are actually like and to help people realize where they stand with him. And that's what's going on in 18 and following. There's a large crowd and a bunch of disciples. And Jesus gave orders. Look at, look at the authority just kind of like dropped in there very subtly. Like a, like a military officer, he gave orders. Let's go. To go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee is his command by boat. Now, Mark's version of the story presents the details a little bit differently in a different order because he's trying to tell some different deals. He, he's getting at some different things. Matthew presents it this way, though, and leaves off the fact that there are actually several boats, a bunch, so, so more than just one boat, a number of disciples would follow him, but a lot are going to be left behind as Jesus kind of breaks contact here on purpose. Of course, they could have walked around, but where he's going is over into more Gentile land, and a number of his Jewish followers would just not have preferred to go over there. So much of this crowd, many disciples are going to be left behind, and Jesus is just fine with that. He's not trying to build numbers. He's not into a crowd for crowd's sake. Let's go. In verse 19, when he says that, a scribe, a teacher of the law, came up to him. Now, verse 21 describes the next guy as another of his disciples. That makes clear that this scribe was, is also a disciple. He is a follower. He's raised his hand to identify with Jesus, and he's doing so again as he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And the language actually makes clear he's not issuing a blank check statement, commitment for life sort of thing. He just means you're going to the other side of the lake, okay, wherever that is, I'll go. That's what he's saying. And Jesus answered him with this contrarian statement, something he knew this guy needed to hear but wouldn't like and probably was put off by. We don't actually get the result here, but the, the implication is that both of these guys didn't buy what Jesus was talking about. But Jesus knows he needs to hear this, so he says to him and to all of us, the animals of nature have homes and resting places, but not me. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What does that mean? Well, the first thing we should notice is this first use of the phrase, son of man. It is going to become probably Jesus' favorite self-describing title. He's going to use it a bunch, but here it is for the first time. And he, he comes to use it a lot and increasingly clearly because of how it connects him to the Messiah figure of Daniel chapter 7. One like a son of man is there. It's a, a dramatic picture, and that's where Jesus is going with this, but it doesn't initially start there. It doesn't really even mostly carry that kind of weight in, in the culture of the day. In the culture of the day, they, they knew that passage, but they also knew other passages in the Bible where son of man was used to describe essentially just people, just a lowly human being. Think, for instance, of Psalm 8 key passage for a lot of people's minds where David writes about what is man 
that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you even care about him. Talking to God. The son of man, human beings, we're so lowly, we're just nothing. I'm just, I'm a nothing. I'm so lowly and empty that you would care for me is remarkable because human beings are nothing. That was actually a very common way for people to hear and understand that phrase. And that's what Jesus is getting at here too. Me, I'm the son of man. I'm just homeless and vulnerable and frail and weak. I'm a nothing. See what he did there? He just created another one of those hmm, sort of moments. I'm with you. I'm, I'm a nothing. I'm frail and weak. I'm not in palaces and on thrones and I'm not collecting big speaking honorariums while I'm staying in five-star five hotels. Uh, this, this work that I'm doing and the work that you'd be doing with me is just lowly work. It's very humble and very meek. And Jesus said that to this scribe and to us because he knows that most would-be followers aren't with him for that. That's not what they signed up for. They're not following him because he's the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and despised and rejected and headed to the cross. That's not the Jesus program that everybody signs up for, raises their hand for and says, that's me, I'm with that. The power and the glory and the masses of crowds coming to you and the adulation and the healing of everybody and the casting out of demons and the kingdom coming. Now that, yeah. That's what I want. And that's not Jesus. Not his ministry, not his church, not actually. Not really. Not until he comes again. Jesus needs to clarify that because this man didn't, didn't know actually what he was trying to sign up for. And so Jesus makes it clear this is not the path to advantage. So essentially what he's saying is if, if you think this is the path, this is how you can kind of like get on the bandwagon and, and hitch yourself to a rising star, let me tell you, the star's crashing. The wheels are coming off the wagon. Let me tell you that right now. This is not the path to advantage. It's the path to lowliness and emptiness, a letting go of all that you were counting on to give you life. I have no place in this world to call my own. There's no place here that I'm at home, and that would be your case too if you were to follow me. This is not where you come find your best life now. This is where you lose your life. This path of following me is narrow and costly. That's what the next guy found out also. Verse 21. 
Lord, I heard you give the order to go. Let me first go and bury my father, then I'll come. A lot has been said and written about that that essentially misses something completely important. I mean, something decisively important here. We tend to read this as if this man's father had just died or perhaps was on his deathbed. And so then, thinking that, we, we hear what the guy says and kind of think it's, it's, that's a kind of a reasonable request, maybe even appropriate or required. The law did, after all, require people to attend to things like this. So that, that's how we hear it. But what we completely miss is that if this man's father had just died or was on his deathbed, there's no conceivable way that he is not at home dealing with that and is instead here hanging out with Jesus in a massive crowd at the lakeshore. Culturally speaking, he could never have left the vigil by his father's deathbed. And if he died, he would have had to be buried within 24 hours, one daylight period, the one that they are in right now. He would be at the gravesite right now. Something in that would have made him ceremonially unclean also. He's not going to be hanging out with people. We miss all of that. So we misunderstand the whole situation. But in reality, this man is not talking about an imminent problem. He's talking about an indefinite problem. What he's actually saying is, my father isn't dead yet. And so I still owe him my top allegiance. In this guy's mind, he is preeminently loyal to his father as long as his father is still alive. So what he's really saying is, here's the deal, Jesus. I love following you in the context of my current life. And as long as we stay right around this neighborhood, right around here, I'm good. Because I can be one of your disciples while also maintaining top allegiance to my earthly father and my family and doing everything that he expects of me. This setup right here, what we got going on right now, is perfect. It works for me. But... If you're moving on and you told me, ordered me to leave this and come follow you way over there, uh, you know, please, Jesus, Lord, grant me permission to make you second. To maintain allegiance to my earthly father and family instead. I'll come when it's over, and it'll end eventually. I mean, you can't live forever. And then I'll come. I'm with you. So? Nope. N-O, nope. That's the answer. Bluntly, that's the answer. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Let the spiritually dead bury the dead whenever it is that he dies. They'll be around to take care of that. 
whenever that happens. In other words, leave the affairs of the world to the people of the world. That's not your allegiance. That's not your your alignment. You are aligned with, if you're going to follow me, you're going to follow me. Now, of course, in other places, Jesus, the rest of the Bible, would teach that to follow him is to care for our earthly family. He's not contradicting that here. But he's just making a plain as day, clear, blunt delineation of when there's a conflict, when there's a a contest, there's only one right option here. Earthly family allegiance is irrelevant. Biological families are temporary. Families are temporary. They are earthbound. Jesus is our allegiance. His spiritual family, the family of the living, that one lasts For some of us, this is extremely challenging. Others of us have less family commitment, less worldly, earthly ties. But all of us need to look at this, and all of us need to see in it this, this man's attempt to straddle the fence and keep dual allegiances. That's what he's trying to do here. Uh, to live some sort of a, a double life, whether it's, it's earthly family and Jesus, which always makes Jesus number two. It's job and Jesus. Whatever it is, it's some sort of attempt to straddle. It's my pleasure in Jesus, my entertainment, my adventure lifestyle, my hobby, my other friends, and Jesus. Yeah, 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 for sure. Right over here next to it, right? I mean, yeah, both. And the answer is nope. Not both. Now, you can't throw away all those things. That, that's the stuff of life. I mean, if you got rid of all of that stuff, there wouldn't be anything left to actually be doing. But it's, the point is that it's not this, with inevitably Jesus second. It's everything else beneath. Jesus, King. And King in all that other stuff. King with your friends and with your job and with your family. But Jesus. That is stiff. But appropriate. He's Jesus. He's the king. He demands first allegiance while we stay engaged with everything else in, in the world, we, we are engaged with it, loyal to him. He's the Lord, and following him may cost us some things. We may have to set some things aside or, or demote some things or kick them into the back seat or maybe out of the car completely because you just can't handle the, the duality of the, the tension there. So maybe there's some things you have to get completely rid of. Maybe. But what's clear is that Jesus demands top billing. There's a lot going on here in in this first paragraph. These two different guys bring up many different issues for us, but essentially what we're supposed to do with it is, is look, think, and count the cost. 
some of us may be on the front end considering you want to follow Jesus or not. Jesus is real clear laying out the cost. And this, this might sound kind of strange because I think sometimes people talk about following Jesus and what they want to do is, like any good salesman, emphasize the positives and you put the negatives in super fine print at the very bottom and you run them by at top speed and you distract somebody with a beautiful image of people skipping and hopping and having a good time. Here's the disclaimer at the bottom. Jesus says, actually, let me flip that and put the hard stuff first. You're going to lose your life. And everything else that you thought was going to give you life is going to be relegated to second place. That's, that's what it costs to follow me. Now, let me be real clear about the bottom. I promise when you lose your life, you will find it. A different life than you thought. But you will find it. I am the one who comes to carry away all that hurts. I am the one that comes to give life. But count the cost. So, if you're on the front end considering, do I want to follow him or not? He wants to encourage you, count the cost. It, it does, for sure, bring you life, but it's a narrow road. A lot of us here, though, I, I know we've been walking that road for some time now, and as I prayed, what, what I hope to have you hear in this is something that kind of like cinches up the, the straps. It tightens you to him. So think about it. Count the cost. Do you see anything? What is it costing you? What might it cost you? If you're looking at Jesus calling you, calling, you can look at something perhaps. I, I know he's calling me to follow him into this, to walk on into some sort of deeper relationship and some sort of, of tighter, closer obedience. And uh, what's that? What's that cost right there? What might you lose if you were to obey him and step onto the narrow path and step away from sin or step away from that sinful relationship or step away from those people you're overcommitted to in the place of Jesus? His call is clear. It is costly. What is it for you? Kind of conceptualize that, jot it down, and then take it with you into the second observation. As I said, it might seem these things are disconnected, but at the end, I, I think we're going to see they actually kind of come back around. So, second observation. Jesus rules even the creation itself. So we can and should follow him without fear. Jesus rules even the creation itself. So we can and should follow him without fear. In verse 23, they finally start the journey that Jesus ordered. They're traveling across the lake in a boat, and a surprising storm arises. Such the boat's in real danger of, of getting swamped, of sinking. And the text tells us that Jesus is actually fully asleep in the boat. 
There's nothing here that indicates anything about this being like a supernatural storm or Jesus being supernaturally asleep. A storm like this can happen in that area for sure, and we all know somebody who, when totally wiped out, can sleep through all kinds of stuff. This appears completely normal. Jesus is there asleep, big danger storm, and the disciples are desperate, and so they woke him up saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And awake now, Jesus' statement is something that we need to consider carefully here. Why are you afraid? Well, on the one hand, I mean, <laughs> I'm standing shin deep in water. I mean, that's why I'm afraid. <laughs> that's obvious. Okay, why really? Why really? Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. There's the reason. Little faith, as, as in weak faith, not big enough, not strong enough faith. You guys, you know some things, but you don't know them. You trust me. You trust some things about me. I mean, you're here with me. You, you came to me. Ask me to help. There's some things you know, but you don't really get me. And there's, there's some unbelief mixed in there. I, I know it. I see it. There's some things you need to, to know right now so that you would not be controlled by this fear. Some things you need to see. So watch. And he rebuked the winds and the sea and whew, calm instantly. It didn't, you know, start to let up. The storm didn't begin to wind down. Raging storm. Calm. I, I'm sure that it is impossible for us to imagine how freaky scary that would have been. We've all been in great storms, but none of us have seen it go, boom, gone. So you're looking around like, why in the world is there water in the boat? It's a perfectly sunny, calm day with not a cloud in sight. The winds are calm, the sea is calm. Why is it? Why are we wet? We've never been there. That kind of a... The disciples freaked out. Actually, what it says is, the men marveled, which is an understatement, but also unusual, because you'd expect, like I said, the disciples, that's how they're always referred to, Jesus and the disciples, Jesus and the disciples. It's Jesus now and the men, as if Matthew is very subtly separating Jesus out from the human beings. There's Jesus and the disciples, now there's Jesus and the men. The men marveled and said, what sort of human is this? Because people, humans, normal people don't do what he just did. Even the winds and the sea obey him. 
He can command us, of course. He can command illness. We've seen that. He can command leprosy, even demons. But all those things are like, are like right here in this guy. That, that one demon-possessed person or this one ill person or, or that leper right there. We, this, but storms, they, they stretch from the, the mountaintop to the mountaintop here in this valley. The horizon, you've got all this. And he commanded the whole. The Bible repeatedly says that only God rebukes the wind and the seas. Over and over again, it's God who rebukes, it's God who rebukes, it's God who rebukes. And this guy, whatever he is, stood up and said, enough. Not who is he, what is he, is the question. What is this? Freaky. It's a great question. It's going to be answered later as we move on through the book of Matthew and all the rest of the Bible, of course, but it's a, it's a question kind of left hanging right here. And what we see here are a couple of the elements of the nature of Jesus. You see here the, the, these two paths that are the, the, the two natures of the Son of God, the second person of the one triune God. Fully human in need of sleep, and so zonked that he's sleeping right through a fantastic storm. And yet, when he wakes up, completely in command of that storm. Like God. He doesn't need to pray to God, he just himself rebukes it. The wind and the waves obey him. We don't get it all spelled out here, but what we're getting there is fully man and fully God. He's, he's not a human deity or a divine man. Fully man with a body that very naturally tires and fully God who commands nature. It's amazing, but here it is true. This is, this is Jesus, God and man. Because that's what he is, he can be and should be trusted. It's really where all this is pointing. The words of Jesus are the main focus here, not the words of the men. The men marvel and wonder what is he, but the words of Jesus are, are always what draws our attention. Jesus speaks to the disciples and to us, and in so doing makes one thing clear. Fear, that is controlling fear, is entirely inappropriate for the Christian. And so they carefully controlling fear. Fear itself is not itself bad or wrong. It's what often moves us to action. We fear failure, so we study for a test. They, they feared, and so they actually went to Jesus and asked him. I mean, there's something that's, that is appropriate as, as an emotion. Fear rises up, but when it controls us, and Jesus' response indicates that he sees something there. When it controls us, that's when the problem arises. And we all know, we've all been in situations where some sort of appropriate fear might fit here, but I'm beyond that. I'm in faithless fear. In the anxiety, the worrying, the striving, and the laboring shows you. We can be and often are controlled by fear and live in response to it, believing essentially what's going on there is you're believing that my world is actually in my hands. Uh-oh, I had better get after it. 
and what I can use to affect my world or the resources that I have or that I can garner or that I can deploy. And so I'm after it and I'm working and I'm wondering if I'm actually capable. If I think I'm capable, I'm proud. I'm not worried. But if I wonder if I'm capable, I'm afraid and I'm controlled by it. And Jesus sees that somewhere in these guys and says, whoa, problem. You're looking at yourself, you're looking at your resources, but you're not looking at Jesus who commands all of this stuff and commands even the very elements that make up all this stuff because he commands the creation itself. So to live there in that fear is inappropriate. And also terrible. Who wants to? We should and we can trust him. Trust in Jesus who holds all of this in his hands and and has committed himself to doing good for us, his people. So, what do you fear? Some consideration of that right now. What, what, What do you find yourself fearing? Got it? I meant really think about it. What, what do you find yourself fearing? And you can follow your, your anxiety. You can follow you know, where your mind runs to with the worry. You can also perhaps follow where you work really, really, really hard. You can, you can track what you fear if you look. Maybe it's some place where you fear essentially something bad's going to happen to you, to a loved one, something you regard as important. It may be important, actually. So right there with that thing, we have to actually not just listen to the Bible, but in applying it, you've got to kind of take yourself in hand and say, this matches that. This is something that I fear, and what I need to do with it is say, Lord, here. This, I, I carry this to some degree anxious. Here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it in your hands, and I'm going to ask you to take care of it. I'm going to entrust this to you. And give it to him. And if you're like me, it'll probably come back in an hour and then give it to him again. And what growing maturity looks like is that then it will come back in an hour and a half and give it to him again. And then three hours and give it to him again. What is it? Walk through that process in your mind. Now, of course, with that, that does not mean when you, when you grab that, you identify it, and you, and you say, here, Lord, I entrust this to you, that does not mean that the thing you fear won't happen. It, it didn't in this case, because we can, we can look back and we can know that the disciples and Jesus dying in a, in a shipwreck in the middle of a storm was not what God had in mind. There's something else coming. We can kind of look back at the story, but you can't look back at your story. I mean, you don't, you don't know. And of course we are aware that sometimes as God looks at our lives and 
plans and purposes to do us good in our lives, sometimes what that means is rather than taking us from the danger, he's going to take us through the danger. Rather than delivering us away from it, he's going to deliver us by it or through it. That sometimes is how God works. Not because he can't do otherwise. Not because the hard thing out-wrestled him and out-foxed him. No, 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 on purpose, on purpose. But though we'll never understand all that. But we can look at a passage like this and say, I can get this much, though. He's in command of every single, every single component of that thing I feared. And I can look ahead, I can look ahead at the cross and the empty tomb, and I can say, and I can also, I got at least one example, plain as day, of how God, through something awful, accomplished something awesome. He delivered the disciples and Jesus from this tragedy, but not from that one. He delivered him to that one on purpose. And the cross is the way, is the way that God then saved you and drawed you to himself and promised you, I'm going to do you good because I abandoned him to the cross. We got at least one example. We'll never understand how and what God is going to do in all the troubles, but the answer only at the end of the day is, I trust you. I look at something like this and say, you are in charge of it. And I look at something like the cross and say, and you have promised, sworn, and shown me it's true, that you intend to do me good, so I'll trust you to bring grace to me in the future. Here. In an hour from now, here it is again. So this passage speaks to all of life, and you should think, what am I afraid of? What, what tends to control me and drive me to anxiety or drive me to work, work, work? And give that to him. It speaks to all of life for the Christian. Use it for all of your life. However, that being said, and that should be said, that being said, I think there is one particular context here which we should be thinking about as we think about how to apply this truth. This fear-faith issue sits in the context of the cost of discipleship. The immediate context of this particular passage is all about how much it's going to cost you to come follow me. We just talked about that. And Matthew, clearly the main point is, is the miracle. The, that, that's obviously front and center here. But Matthew tells the story a little bit differently than others. He tells the story in a way that holds the discipleship context and carries it forward. Matthew tells the story with only one boat and Jesus getting into that boat first and they followed him. The other guys didn't. And while following him on the journey that he laid out for them, they meet trouble, and Jesus is apparently not there. And when Jesus does show up, Matthew front loads the conversation before the miracle, putting emphasis on the conversation. The issue here really is faith and fear. Disciples. 
That's a context. Not that the miracle is any less important. Obviously, that's the main point. But he presents that in a context, a discipleship framework, very subtly carried forward here. So I think we'd be wise to ask, not just what do I fear in general in life, but what do I fear that discipleship will cost me? As you count the cost, like we talked about earlier, as you count the cost, what feels like that might be too high? That might be too much. What I fear is going to be lost if I obey him. If, if I surrender all of my life, I put all of my finances, I put all of my time, all the choices of how I spend my time, all the relationships I pursue, the people I hang out with, those that I choose to give my, my time, my affection, my love to, if I put all of that on the altar and say, here, Lord, mm, what do you fear right there? That fear. What do you fear of the life that you'd lose in coming to follow him? I remember reading some time ago something that C.S. Lewis once wrote about the cost of discipleship. Maybe you've heard this before, but I don't know where it's from. It's from some time back, one of his books somewhere, I'm sure. But it struck me when I read it. I remembered it. Convicted me. I think it fits here. Lewis said that most Christians approach discipleship, approach following Jesus like honest taxpayers. Maybe you remember that phrase. Like honest taxpayers. Honest taxpayers go through all the forms and fill them all out accurately and all the schedules and this and that and the other and you cross-reference and you calculate just exactly because you want to pay exactly what you owe, not one dime more, but you want to pay exactly what you owe, what you owe. And all the while, an honest taxpayer is just hoping that there will be enough left over at the end to live like I want to. To live just a little bit, I hope. Discipleship as an honest taxpayer Afraid that the bill is just going to be too high and I'm going to just, ah, going to give up my life and I won't have anything left. That's what we're afraid of. And Lewis essentially says, he comes to the same conclusion that Jesus invites us to just send it all in. Just send it all in. Because. When Jesus says, send it all in, what he says is, and trust me, I'll give you something different back. Way better. If you want that, you have to send it all in. If you want to find your life, you'll have to lose it first. Stop trying to uh, just send it all in and trust me. I will give back a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come, eternal life. Trust me. 
The kingdom of heaven is yours if you trust me. Don't pursue a life. You can't hold on to it. You can't find one. You can't make one. Only I can. But I only give it to those who say, I'm giving up everything to follow you. You're first. You get top billing. I don't care what it costs me. The life I'm, I'm signing up for, I get it. It's narrow and hard and costly, but it leads to heaven. And a hundredfold here and now. Trust me. Why can I trust you? Well, look, I command even nature. I command everything. And look at the cross and the empty tomb. I promise you, you'll die with me in the cross and the empty tomb, but you'll raise to life, life abundant, life full. Trust me. Christian, or if you're not a Christian yet, but you're considering it, the call, the cost, is really high. No doubt. That's not the fine print. He wants to make that the bold print. It costs you everything. And the promise is, and it delivers you life. All the miracles are showing us that. That this is the Jesus who is fully God and fully man in command of everything. And he goes to the cross anyway on purpose to give you life. If you trust him. Trust him. Fear not and follow me, says Jesus. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.